Welcome back, everybody, to the Self Storage Income Podcast. We have another incredible episode lined up for you today. But before we get into that, huge shout out to all of our amazing sponsors Janice International, Store Local, Live Oak Bank, and Tenant Inc. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You guys probably hear us talking about these guys on the podcast all the time. Janice International, tons of amazing people, tons of amazing products, services, their Noki service, their R3 program, all these different aspects to help you build an amazing storage facility or upgrade your storage facility. Uh, just a fantastic group. Store local. It's honestly one of the biggest threats to self-storage is, is market consolidation and everything that goes along with that. So enter Store Local, the largest storage co-op in the world. Just amazing people again, tons of tons of awesome people there and uh, amazing solutions to bring everybody's resources together and uh, utilize those in an effective way to be able to compete and also uh, thrive in a world of competition with some of these larger REITs and the big players in the self-storage industry. Check out Store Local. Amazing, amazing opportunities there. Live Oak Bank. I don't know how many of you guys came to our live event in Coeur d'Alene just this past year, but uh, we had some amazing conversations with Live Oak Bank there, and they were probably one of the most popular uh, <laughs> topics there in our, our breakout sessions. And And people want to know. They, they want to know the financing. You guys want to know what the solutions are, what the deals look like, all these different aspects to financing. Live Oak Bank is that answer specifically for self-storage. They specialize in storage, which is just incredible. There's no learning curve for them to understand the asset. They know it. They've been there before, and they can help you see things that you might not even be seeing yourself. So Live Oak Bank, amazing. Check the link in the show notes. And last but not least, Tenant Inc., Tenant Inc. is an incredible slew of products and services, essentially, for your storage facilities to help automate, to help streamline, to help optimize your business and your storage facility. They've got uh, their Hummingbird platform, Nectar platform, uh, their Mariposa platform. Just to scrape the surface here, their, their property software, the big thing about this is the API is open. So you guys can actually, you, you own your data, you can use other third parties and back that into your systems. It's not this closed system that, that only uses proprietary X, Y, and Z. You guys have total control over your data, total control over these various aspects of running your business, uh, running your storage facility. And uh, they just got some amazing products. Again, these are storage owner operators that have created and developed these solutions. And uh, it, it's just an amazing platform. So check it out. Without further ado, guys, here's the episode. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. And today, I'm really excited about uh, this podcast because we have a guest, Ian, on today, and we're going to be talking about his uh, multiple acquisitions, his portfolios, his properties, what he's doing. Um, and I'm really excited to hear about that in, in combination, too, as well as some of the other assets that he's owned and what why he's been going into self-storage and what he likes about it. It should be a good one. Yeah, I'm excited. Excited to dive into this. We got uh, obviously the self-storage aspect in here, but it looks like we got some other uh, asset types and things like that. So it'll be kind of cool to have that experience uh, pulling from those different asset classes and types um, and maybe even kind of look at comparison, pros, cons, something like that. So, 100%. Yeah, excited to dive in. Yeah. With that said, why don't we dive into this? Ian, welcome. How's it going? What's up, guys? How you doing? Doing, doing good. good. Appreciate you taking the time to come on here today and tell us a little bit about uh, your experience here and uh, these acquisitions and the portfolio and everything you got going on. Um, but you know, you are now—I uh, guess you'd say—technically retired, but you were a fireman, correct? Yep, I was a fireman full time for the city of Baltimore for about fourteen years, and my business partner was a fireman with me for about 15 years and we recently uh you know thanks to real estate and investing in real estate 
allow allowed us to retire early. So uh, we call it retiring. Technically, we resigned, but you know we got to mentally cope with it. So we call it retire. There you so, go. There. <laughs> there you go. And now, how long has it been since you made this uh, transition? Yeah, so I left in September of 21, so just a few months ago, and Dan left in October of 21. So it's still fresh. Um, yeah. You know, we never realized how much we did while we worked. Yeah, and look, I get it. We had a great schedule, 24 hours on, 24 hours off, 24 hours on, five days off. But still, man, there's a mental drain there. and We never realized how much stuff we were getting done, even though we were doing that. And then, like, once we both retired, we're like, how the heck? Did we ever get all this done while we were still working our other jobs? Like, I just, I don't even know, like, where all the time, like, how we ever did it, you know? Yeah. Oh, I know. I, I, man, I feel the same way. I look back when we were building our portfolio, working multiple jobs. I mean, it's just like, holy cow, how did we do it all? Um, And, you know, I think that's part of it, though. I I think when when you're in it, if you're trying to figure out how you're going to do it, it doesn't work. You just got to do it. And you got to figure it out, right? So let, let's walk into this. How, how did you start? How did how did you get started? Uh, well, we got started in real estate um, in right around 2012, 2013. We both got hired as an fireman uh, between 07 and 08. We all know what happens in 08, 09. That whole good error, the end of the world's coming. You know, they, we don't have any overtime. They start messing with our pension, you know, because we don't pay Social Security. They start messing with our health care benefits, change our schedule. All these things are going on. And we're sitting there going, well, how are we going to provide? Um, and we turned through a friend to real estate because we said, well, what what can we do? Well, we're at work and we're asleep or we're out on a fire in the middle of the night and we can still earn money. And it's not super intensive once it's up and running. What can we do? And we turned to residential real estate. Um you know, rental properties, we started in the single family world and just kept grinding it out. Um, and that came out of a neat, right? Like, and that kind of goes back to like what you were just saying, of like, how the heck do we ever get anything done? It's like, do we needed to do this? And we just kept grinding and grinding and grinding. Um, and then, you know, as you start to do real estate, you know, single family, you start doing that a bunch. Next, you know, you wind up with a hundred rental properties. So like, oh my God, how this happened? And then you're like, oh, well, what's going on with the market? Then you stumble on some multifamily or industrial and you just keep growing and evolving. And that's kind of what happened for us. Um, and that's how we got involved in real estate. And that's how it's blossomed into what it is today, just by grinding and seeing what else is in the marketplace and, you know, doing the best deals that are put in front of us, you know? I love it. And walk us through kind of some of those first properties. Um, did you do them all on your own or were these properties that you syndicated oh, or no, we, we, we started, we started at the very, very, very bottom. Dan, my partner got started through wholesaling properties. Um, you know, the very traditional, no money out of pocket, trying to figure out how to get involved in real estate. I bought a rental property. And when I say I bought a rental property, we're talking about, you know, the heart of East Baltimore watching, like go watch the wire. I thought I was a tough guy. I could go in there and do it. You know, I bought a $25,000 house. I pieced it together. I got a subsidized tenant and look, that's where our specialty was for a really long period of time and subsidized rentals. Um, but you know, I was down in the very, very as bottom class D. I don't even know if there's below a class, whatever. <laughs> like that's where I was. That's where I started. Right. But yeah, again, it's what was available to me to even, get involved. I had 15 grand saved up. And to me, that was the world, you know, I'm working, uh, you know, as a fireman and we're not making a lot of money. Yes. We trade off money in exchange for great healthcare pension job security. But in 2008 to 2012, that was thrown out the window. We didn't yeah. know they were threatening to lay us off. They furloughed us. They did all this crazy stuff. I literally started at the bottom and you know what, like sometimes you just got to try it out and see if you like it. And then grow on what you learn, like what worked or what didn't work when you're doing it. And very quickly I found out, well, if I can't go there at night and like, there's a service call, I don't really want to do this. So maybe I should buy stuff in a little bit nicer area. So I figured out how to make a little bit more money, save a little bit more. I think everybody should, you know, that's where you got to start. There's nothing to say you have to stay there. You can grow and get to the next level. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you a hundred percent there. And I love Kind of, you know, as you talk about and as you go through, you know, your struggle and and it's a perfect too example of this scale property, right? And like how you went through, you started out, you started figuring it out and 
you move now to let's kind of fast forward. Tell us about the properties that you currently have. Yeah, I mean, our, our most recent acquisition was a, a three property, 250,000 square foot um, self storage portfolio in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, acquisition cost was right around 11, a little bit over 11 million bucks that we syndicated, right? Mm-hmm. And when I started, I was like, oh, I'm not, I never need anyone's money. I'll just figure this out on my own. And then you quickly realize like the benefit of having other people co-invest with you, the financial freedom it provides for you, all these good things, you know, you literally can move up the asset class and you can grow. Um, and that's kind of what happened for us. So as we got a little more sophisticated, refined our process, we started taking on a little bit money and grow and grow and grow very, very organically. Um, so yeah, that was our most recent purchase and kind of vaguely how we structured it, um, you know, and, and that's where we are. So now, and why, why, uh, what brought you to like, what brought you to that self-storage facility? What brought you to the point where you identified that? What was it? Uh, so the way we would kind of stumbled on self-storage, and I, I think a lot of people are going through this now, and I hate to say I'm one of those people that are like making the switch, uh, even though I've been in for a few years now. Um, but, you know, COVID really, and I'm not a COVID fan by any means. Um, so I know it's your show. I don't want to get political by any means. So try to keep this straight. But uh, COVID has really exposed the consumer laws that you are confined to in the residential real estate space. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally, just prior to COVID, we did buy some industrial properties that were, you know, nothing crazy, but local to us in Baltimore. And we didn't really realize the benefits that we had on our hands. But as COVID started to come out and some of the laws that we have to conf- uh, be conf- um, confined to when it comes to evictions, rent raises, all these different things that COVID truly exposed were like, you know, like what's going on here? Coincidentally, we were starting to buy some self-storage properties and getting involved and everything that like you look at self-storage is like, man, this is a cool business. Not only it's a business, which is a little bit different than rental residential rental real estate, which we like because we get to be a little more creative. Simultaneously, we didn't realize all the consumer laws that I don't want to say we didn't have to abide to. We're just not as constricted, you know, yes. with lien laws, uh, with month to month leases, you know, especially now with inflation and everything going on, you know, as rents start to drive up, it's like, man, you got a lot more freedom to be a business owner versus what we're doing in the residential world. So that's kind of the comparison that we started to see. Um, you know, in the end, we're, we're opportunistic investors. If we see a multifamily property that's still local here to us in our backyard, you know, we might take advantage of that. We just know the benefits of storage versus compared to what we're dealing with in the residential side that we're going to be way more careful underwriting those deals and saying, is all this stuff that you have to follow these eviction laws, no rent increases. Um, you can't charge late fees right now in Maryland. Like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. And I hate to say, it, you know, the, the property owners that are leasing to residential real estate um, starting to become the devil in some people's eyes. And you really got to start to be careful of that. Do you want to go down this path? So mm-hmm. um, that's how storage and, and really just commercial real estate in general has provided us a whole, the whole next level to be, uh, a little bit more free and do what we want to do um, and be able to operate as a true business. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that because one of my questions for you was was the big push of, of really why, why you went from residential and then got into commercial, what that uh, opportunity and that value looked like for you guys. Um, and that's honestly freedom, num- number one thing, right? Yep. Like I'm all for that. Well, yeah. <laughs> and well, I think, you know, like the other thing is like, yeah, we've been talking to a, a lot of our investors over the past few deals are just like, they're like, why do you like storage? And, you know, just some of the fun stuff to talk about is like in residential real estate, hey, come sign my lease. I'm basically seeing a year. I might raise your rent by 3%. There's not like any crazy dynamic stuff going on first. And I don't need to market. I don't get to use my creative side as much in in storage. You know, you're, you're tweaking your your marketing ads. Um, whoever's doing that for you, you know, your dynamic pricing, you got all these other profit centers through um, tenant insurance, uh, 24 hour access, whatever it may be. But there's a lot of more creative stuff that you get to do. And now you really start to become like, like I keep saying, it, but like a business owner, right. whereas like in residential real estate, you could literally just be a property owner and just let it trudge along, pay your debt off. And yeah, you'll have a great life. Um, but this is a little more fun, a little more uh, interactive, shall I say. Hundred percent. You know, when we got into it, that was 
the reason why we just stuck with storage over the last it was it there was more opportunity and ability for us to improve find grow the revenue that self storage offers and um, you know, when you look at all the benefits uh, associated with that, I think one of the things that COVID did, as you mentioned, is it really shined light um, in a lot of other asset classes in not a good way. You know, over the last uh, 15, 20 years, some of the golden gooses of real estate have just been destroyed. And that's, you know, when we're looking single family homes, retail, um, uh, recreational um, uh, lease uh, uh, alone for uh, commercial utilization, everything from um, uh, food, on and on and on. Right? It like the Great Recession, then COVID back to back, really showed some of the flaws and uh, how sensitive those things are to change and the overreaching impact that. Um, you have when the government can just walk in and say, you can no longer collect revenue. You can't do this. You can't do that. And basically dictate everything you can do with your business, which at that point, it's not a business anymore, right? It's, yeah. I mean, you, you just got to do whatever you're told and whether you make money or not, doesn't matter. Nobody cares. Nobody yep. cares. That's not even part of the equation. And that to us was always terrifying. And uh, um, I'm like, I, you're just like one legislation away from being in serious trouble or, or, or bankrupt where, you know, we've put a lot, a lot of money, capital time fighting state legislatures. And it's one of the biggest things that people don't talk about. And the biggest risks that we have in storage is the over, is the coming in after our lien loss process. And it's important for self-storage owners to understand this and know this, that you should be fighting on a local level and you should be working in coordination with the SSA, the ISS, and you should be going after your state officials, both on the House and the Senate, to look at and protect the lien law processes that we have in self-storage because those came under attack during COVID. And it showed a lot of light that we didn't want shown in it. And it showed a lot of light too, where states... They didn't have it clearly worked out, and now people are starting to look in. And it's something that as an industry, we really have to fight to protect because of all the reasons that you just mentioned. We don't want to turn in to uh, the kind of regulation and oversight that we see in these other asset classes. Um, and it's kind of an unknown thing that you know we deal with all the time. We haven't talked about very much on the podcast. Uh, we worked over the last two years. My, my dad actually was... He's just been nonstop and with our state and local government as as we've worked hand in hand with SSA to try to make sure we have the appropriate laws that protect us as storage owners. It's very important. And it's important because it is one of the big values as an operating business that we have within this asset class. And we can see what happens on the other side, as you've just mentioned. And we really got to fight to protect that. Yeah, and I, I give so I give everyone like frame of reference. Here in Maryland, we bought a multifamily property in um june of 20 we inherited some tenants who moved in in february 20 just prior to COVID. COVID hits we literally just got the evictions a year and a half later for that comparatively speaking we're still doing auctions we're still getting people out in 45 to 60 days depending where you're operating i mean that's huge i, I think if we could all go back in time and find the self-storage lobby uh, way back when, when they were setting it all up, we need to thank every single one of them Yes, uh, because it's really proving um, one of the benefits of this asset class. And look, none of us want to throw people out, but you know what? In the same no. sense, uh, the fact that you have the freedom to actually operate and do what you need to do to protect your asset is, uh, I think, one of the biggest benefits inside storage and commercial yeah. real estate in general. We, we want a fair playing field. That's all. Exactly. And, and we want to know the rules of the game. And I don't want the rules to be changed on me out of the blue. That's what we don't want, right? This is about protecting the operational integrity of our asset to operate the business and see forward, understanding the rules, the parameters in which those rules are executed and engaged, and how overarching those rules are. Because it's not about throwing things out, but it's definitely about protecting us from getting abused, um, right? There was a lot of downside. A lot of people lost jobs. And there was a lot of bad things happening within COVID. 
And at the exact same time, the abuse that happened with COVID for the private business, as well as the governments and everything, was rampant. It was rampant. And we want to make sure that we are fair, that there's the uh, good playing field. But two, you don't want to be abused. And in storage, we have the benefit that people aren't living with us. It is very much a choice. We're leasing out ground, right? And it's, you can put your stuff on it or not. We have plenty, ample opportunity to correct for you to pay. There's laws that protect those consumers. And a lot of people think that we make money from storage auctions. We don't. So the only thing we can do is make up for the, the rent that was owed, which almost never happens ever. It is almost always a loss and it can never be a gain. What happens with those is if we do make money, let's say somebody sold a storage unit for $50,000 and they owed us 200. We get 200 and then we have to give all that money back to the tenant. So it's not like these are unfair laws. These are very fair, just laws. And nobody makes money from the auction. You may get one or two that you make your money back right? That you just simply make up what was owed to you. But other than that, nine times out of 10, we lose money and lots of it. And that's a reason why a lot of people are finding out, and maybe you have, we've moved to like automatic payments, online auctions, things like that. Because we're the, the ultimate goal is to make sure nobody goes into auction ever. Because I don't care if I'm giving late fees, whatever it is, you lose so much that even with late fees and everything else, you can never come out on top. And we've seen that time and time again over every single property that we have. Yeah, just the management aspect of those oh, delinquencies is insane. And if you could eliminate those, I mean, you're going to be way further ahead. Way further ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us would like, you know, to stay occupied and have people pay, right? Like it's, it is the best subscription model out there, right? Like if you want to look at it and compare it to other businesses outside of real estate, it is a great subscription model yeah. because of the price point of most of these units, you know, you're talking 50 to hundred, 150, sometimes, you know, you really start to creep up depending what you have. But in the end, it's, it's a small cost comparatively speaking to most people's operating budget versus their rent. When they're staring at a thousand dollar monthly bill, they're like, Oh, well, let me see how long I can stretch this so I can pay my thousand bucks. But they always protect their stuff in their storage unit. And I agree getting to getting to auto pay, um, and all those good things and, you know, providing incentives to that, you know, and make all of our lives easier. It really is a no brainer. Yeah, no, absolutely. So speaking of that, I, I've got a couple questions for you. I want to cover your first storage deal, you know, how you guys found it, funded it, all that jazz. But then I also want to get into the management aspect. How are you guys managing running the facilities? Yeah. So um, I'll give you some color on our uh, storage portfolio down in Baton Rouge. One of the first deals we did um, was a 20,000 square foot, uh, mom and pop owner in a little bit tougher neighborhood. Um, a friend of mine approached me and said, Hey, I found this deal. We can get a really good price. I think we paid like $15 a foot as it should be priced $15 a foot. <laughs> um, but you know what? It was in a little bit tougher neighborhood. He's like, Hey, I, I need someone that's, you know, can come in and flex and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll try it out. Um, you know, so we, we had some learning curve there. Um, you know, we learned a lot about how, um, unit, uh, storage facilities and a little bit lower end demographic, uh, the trials and tribulations you have, uh, the sophistication of the renter, um, you know, uh, the quality of the asset, we had to do some capital improvements to bring it up to par. We're continuing to, uh, do some improvements to it, um, and moving it along. That one was, uh, financed. It was an owner finance deal. Uh, and then we put the equity in side by side with it. Uh, to complete the capital stack on that. Um, so it was kind of, you know, it was literally just a business in a box. It was brought to us by uh, another friend of ours who presented us the deal that made a small wholesale fee on it. Um, and, you know, it, it was a win-win situation for everybody involved. So um, that one we self-managed. We were running an unmanned um, operation there. Coincidentally, you know, we've been involved in a few other properties in that area and outside that area that um, our thesis has become that we enjoy finding the deals and doing the capex of the deals. Um, we can manage the properties, but for us, we've decided to go third party on the management side of things just because right now we see this as a great growth time. Um, and in that growth, I hear you guys talk about it all the time and I hear a lot of other shops talking about it. 
you know, the growth that you guys are going through, it kind of got, sometimes you got to hit the pause button. You can't do everything, right? But for us, we'd rather sub out the management right now. Um, we'd rather sub out the management right now and concentrate on continuing to acquire, find deals, and do the CapEx and stay in the lane that we're very, very good at. And then at a later date, when we have a critical mass, hopefully our manager is so good that we don't ever want to think about taking that out. We're fine with that line item cost. Then again, there's also something about paying out hundreds of thousand dollars of management fees that it might say, okay, it's worth it now for us to build out a management company. Let's do that. So uh, that's kind of where we're coming from on our end of things, uh, you know, because in the end, everyone says, oh, storage is is super easy to manage, but it's not. there's there's management that comes <laughs> with storage if you're operating it yeah. and executing it on a high level every single day, that there's a lot more work than what you realize. It, it might not be the same as going out and building out a house, but you are going to spend time revenue management, mm -hmm. making sure your auctions are going on, what's going on with your overlocks, cleaning units out, getting them online. What are you doing on a day-to-day -day basis? So that's why we've decided to go third party. Yeah, no, it, you've you hit it on that. If I ever hear an owner that's managing it say, the thing that I love about storage is just how passive it is. I don't need to do anything. I immediately want to buy their property. Right. It, it, that is a <laughs> that is just a hands up sign that they Total are so sign. underperforming. It's not even funny because um, when you look at it, it's funny. We look. I look at other industries like you were mentioned, like um, multifamily things like that. And I'm like, that is so passive and. Uh, um, when I look at those assets, I'm like, you have a lease and then you walk away. Whereas, and we say this time and time again, storage is a business. We are like a retail center. You have customers coming in all the time. And two, if you're not staying on top of it, you can get caught fast and it can really hurt you. And so this idea that you went into it and found an expert in their lane and you paired up, that allows you to grow a lot faster. That allows you to, to learn while not faltering, and especially at today's pricing. I mean, if you're walking into a facility at today's pricing, you need to execute. You need to be able to execute well. So when you were looking at that third-party management company, what were you looking for in a third-party management company? What were the things that you wanted to see? What did you need out of them? Yeah, so for us, it came to the day-to-day, -day, answering the phone, move-ins, uh, and revenue management, you know, and, and for us, I, I feel like revenue management, yield management, uh, you know, collections and, and your, your pricing on a daily basis are two of the most important things you can do inside this business. Like you were just talking about the difference between multifamily and storage to us. Well, they might, you might say, okay, multifamily is more passive. That might be a true statement. However, the case management of the tenant is completely different. And that's where your time gets sucked up versus in storage, you're, you're concentrating most of your time on dynamic pricing and your revenue centers uh, and not so much on the tenant. Uh, yeah. So that's maybe why in your lens, it looks a little bit different and maybe more passive. So for us, when we were looking at it, we said, okay, well, we know from operating our facility, we need to get move-ins, we need to get um, dynamic pricing in place, and we need to, uh, collections is the three best things that we can do. So we wanted to find a property manager who had their own call center um, that, has been in the business for a very long period of time and they're not just a new pop-up mm -hmm. uh, and that they understand the market and what we're trying to do. Um, you know, and it's up to you if you want me to share who we decided to use, but again, yeah, this is, that. Who, I mean, yeah, so we decided to use Copper and Bob Copper and, and his whole program that they've recently launched. They also have the same um, thesis on running unmanned facilities, which I know there's kind of a debate on, but I do see it as the future and they're having success with it. And we thought it was a great fit because it fits our needs and what we believe in. Um, and that's where we saw the benefit in the relationship. And, you know, plus, uh, you know, they got years of years of um, experience that, you know, we get to use that relationship and say, hey, man, we're thinking about doing this capital improvement. So just real quick, our job as the property owner in this situation kind of shifts. We're doing all the CapEx, right? And we're making sure this property is ready for them. I, I tell them, my job is to make your the property so good that your job is so stupidly easy. And that's vice versa, that you're managing the property so well, my job's so stupidly easy. We need to work hand in hand. So knowing a, uh, a company that's been in business for a long time and they we have the same thought process on how to run the property, it seems to be a good fit. So when we say, hey, we're thinking about doing a full door replacement over here, what's your guys' thoughts? And they say, well, no, it's just a few springs. We can do this. Let's let's CapEx. Let's plan it out a little bit longer. Say, yo, dude, we need doors fixed. 
because I can't run a unit, I, you know, you're setting me up for failure. Yeah. And that's kind of the dynamic that I think a lot of people miss when they're hiring third party. They just say, oh, here you go. Screw it. Good luck. Um, but really, you need to be an active owner in this situation as well. Yeah, 100%. Third party management doesn't mean you're not an active owner. That is, that is, and that's, you're, if you believe that, you're setting yourself up for disaster because the third party management needs to execute and it's a partnership. And I loved what you said when you talked about, okay, we need to be aligned with those people. And it doesn't matter how good a third party management is, they're not always good at everything. I don't care who they are. And so understanding where you want, and two, also understanding based upon the marketplace that they're in based upon the property type and how that property type needs to be executed, um, you really need to fit that in. And I know there's some people that will actually have multiple third-party management companies operating depending on certain expertise and locations. Um, uh, And that's something that when you're interviewing that third-party management, what is going to constrain you or going to make it hard for you to execute in a normal way within this market and within this asset type because either it's out of their wheelhouse or they may not have the infrastructure or the time being. These are all very important that you, uh, questions that you have to answer and it has to be in line with your business plan. You're setting forward the business plan. You know how you want it to be executed. And based upon that, you have to have somebody that can execute it or uh, according to how you want it done, or you're going to have major confrontations if you're not philosophically on the same page of what is supposed to happen with that asset. And it's something that a lot of people overlook. Just because they're a great third-party management company doesn't necessarily mean they're great for you. Yeah, we, you know, and coming from the residential world, you see that a lot more where people are like, oh, I got 10 rental properties. I'm just going to turn it over to a manager and I'll be fine. And it's like, you just handed away everything and like you're not paying attention to what's going on and you know staying on top of of the daily you know or at least monthly reporting and say hey man i got a high water bill or whatever you know so we learned a lot of that granted we self-managed everything on our own in the residential world so it was hard for us to give up management but again when you go into storage and it's not just look you're buying a business but with we're underwriting the underlying real estate right like that's really what we're doing here. And if you're not willing to be all in on the day-to-day operation, which for us, we're a small shop. It's me and my business partner um, and a few employees here locally that were like, hey, man, we don't want to go build out a call center. We don't even using the third-party call centers. You still need people in place. You need district managers or whatever else. It's like, no, we'd rather just have the boots on the ground. And for what it's going to cost us for what we have, we could pay an employee and try to figure this out on our own, or we could hire the third party and continue to grow and get to critical mass and then decide what we want to do. Um, and that's, you know, again, you need to have what your goals are aligned, right? Yeah. I think too many people just go out there and like, I'm going to buy a storage facility. I'm going to hand it to AJ and let him manage it or whoever or copper and, it'll be fine. No, like you no. still need to be involved and you need to know what your goals are. hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah. And also sure. I want to take your facility because I don't third party manage, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. And in two, when you look at it, a lot of people have this stigma in place with storage. It's so easy because all it is, is a door with a floor. And those people are the people that when they get by it, they don't understand. And I see this a lot. The person that owned it prior could operate it better. And out of, uh, out of real estate assets, it's one of the biggest spreads I've ever seen as as uh, as focused on the returns associated with the operational side. So when you're looking at a storage facility and its performance, a huge portion of that is predicated by the operations. Huge. And you know when you look at other markets, marketplaces where when you're talking about either rents and what you can get from them in revenue. They're very similar when you're looking at major retail, when you're looking at multifamily, even a hotel space, they all track. The marketplace sets different pricing. It sets different things. So you can, based upon quality, location, right? All that stuff. Storage, though, is not that's not true. You could have a good asset in a good location and good quality, and you could have a bad asset in a bad location that's being operated better, and it'll make way more money than the other one. And a lot of people don't recognize this. You could buy an asset, and if you don't operate it the way it should be, you will make way less money than the person buying it. And then all of a sudden they say, this sucks. Storage isn't as good as people think it is. Or well, it's just because you're failing at the operations. And being self-aware enough to know that is very important. I often tell people that are getting into storage now, you should probably have somebody else manage it because you've never done this. Watch them, learn from them, 
then decide if you want to do it or not. Because it's that or start small like I did and grow into it, right? But if you're going to go out and buy a $10 million asset and you're going to think that you can operate it the same, you better really understand those operators. You better be targeting really poor operators that you're going to improve upon it. But if that operator is a good operator and you've never done it, you're going to be in a world of hurt. There's a big difference. Yeah. And coincidentally, that that property that we bought, there was a third party manager in it. And it was a case of the owner saying, okay, the manager's got my back. And I'm like, well, we can still, because we interviewed the manager just because we were trying to do the right thing. But I was like, what do you think you can squeeze out of this? He's like, oh, with a little bit of improvements, I think I can squeeze out, you know, an extra 200 grand a year. Meanwhile, my pro forma is telling me a half million bucks a year, if not more. Um, and, you know, when I started interviewing my managers, I was like, well, what do you think the revenue line is going to be? And making sure that our goals align. And again, it was just a case of a, a manager tr- or an owner trusting his manager that left us value to go out and buy this thing to have runway for what we want to do long term. Um, and to go back to Connor's question, you know, I kind of glazed over of like our first deal. Um, but <laughs> you know, one of the, the, it goes to AJ's point of like, there's a lot more stuff to underwrite here. You know, I, I watch storage and I was like, man, it makes sense. I get it. And then you start underwriting stuff. You're like, man, I got to do this. I got to do that. And I got real nervous and I was like spending time spending, I actually spent money to get, it was the first time I ever spent money, um, to like go to like events to like actually try to learn the asset class because i was like i put it up on this pedestal and i got so scared of it but there's a lot of things that you need to underwrite when you're doing the deals because it again it's not just the underlying we can we can value it based on an appraisal but there's a lot more that goes into your underwriting um so to be fair my first deal i spent a lot of time underwriting before we took action on that first deal you know 100 so. percent. Mm-hmm. i mean honestly one of our secrets to our success was that our underwriting was so good comparative to others and people were so dependent on an appraisal and we didn't believe appraisal mattered basically at all and that a that ability allowed us to find opportunity everywhere that most people were missing and we bought properties up that we paid you know, that we're going for the appraisal was 3 million and we're paying four and a half and people are like, you're crazy. And then we're doubling the revenue. And within two months, uh, within two months, it's worth eight, 9 million. And then people are like, well, how did we miss this? Well, you were going off an appraisal to something that had (laughs) nothing to do with operations. And it shows that difference. And when you're underwriting, you need to make sure that you're underwriting with the operational mind Uh, with an operational mind. And I like to tell people that say, well, I don't know how to do that or I don't know what to do. This is really easy. If you have a property, go find three property management companies, tell them all to underwrite it and give you basically um, what they believe that they can do. Have them present to you why they would be a good management company. And it's going to be amazing what you find out. They're going to say, we believe we can do this, this, this. You give them all the records, they underwrite it, they create a business plan together, and then you can choose which one you want to do and execute based upon their abilities. And it is going to be why I um eye-opening to you at what possibilities were within that asset that you didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, no, we and we started, we started with price per square foot because we were tactile people. That's what we understood. We were real estate. So the first deals we're looking at, we're like, okay, well, if I can get it less than 30 bucks a foot, it's below replacement cost, uh, within six months, uh, probably less. I was like, okay, <laughs> I got this. You got revenue streams here, here, and here. Price per square foot. Yeah, I'm going to factor it in, but that's not the only factor here, man. Like, here's here's my revenue lines. This is where the you know NOI is coming out. This is what it's worth. Like, very quickly did my pro forma expand from just price per foot. But you know, again, if you're jumping asset classes or you are new, it's going to be harder to find a deal to file price per foot. But you know what? It's a great metric to say. You know what? At least I'm getting this property. I know the replacement cost. It's hard for me to get damage if I'm close to replacement cost and I can figure this out. Um, and that's kind of how we dipped our toe into it that ultimately expanded us into everything else that we're doing today. No, I love mm-hmm. that. Now, talk to me about here, you know, moving forward and moving in the future. Um, what are your plans? Are you looking at uh, multiple other asset classes? Are you sticking with storage? Have you developed a strategy? What's your outlook? Uh, I didn't know I was getting on a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, we are at the beginning of the year. We do talk about it. You know, for us, it's interesting. Um, we are opportunistic, right? We do yeah. have multifamily and industrial and storage. Our runway on storage is probably the most um, 
where we see the most opportunity for the foreseeable future. However, if something local to us in Maryland or where we operate our other stuff, uh, our other assets that we would take action on, um, but for us to uh, get diverted from what we're trying to do today, it would have to be a smoke show of a deal. Um, we like our, again, for storage, for our runway, we love the asset class. We love what it provides. We love the market diversification we're getting outside of the Baltimore and Maryland uh, region, um, ultimately a little more red states where we have some more freedom to do things. And uh, transfer cost of properties are not insane um, and all that good yeah. tax stuff. Um, but yeah, that's that's what that's our plan. Um, you know, right now we syndicated our past few deals um, and just kind of growing on that um, and seeing where it takes us. You know, I think if we get to a half million square feet in the Baton Rouge two-hour radius, you know, MSA market, uh, that'd be a good uh, feat for us and see where we go from there. Um, and then you know, you you always come up to that great crossroad disposition of the asset. Do you refinance? Do you sell it? What's it doing? Um, so we have some unique things coming up on us. Um, but like now, I said, when, when you're raising money, sorry, I want to jump in here and talk about this. Um, are you sticking very close with like fire departments? Has that been a strategy for you to raise within those communities and those people that you know? What is your strategy about raising money going into um, storage, especially on your first deal and to continue to? How did you break into that? Yeah. So, you know, our sphere of influence is definitely firemen, cops, nurses, mm -hmm. teachers, you know, so we have this sweetheart of a multifamily deal come up. That was one of the first times we did a major capital raise. We did all the proper filings uh, with the SEC and, you know, did the full PPM, um, you know, but again, there's for us, it's, it's a very easy pitch. Look, you know, a lot of firemen are married to um, <laughs> people, <laughs> long story short, they, they always seem to marry up and they have good financial backgrounds. But, you know, we're always like, look, man, these assets, we don't get to see these things. You know, like here's an opportunity for you to invest in the stuff that Wall Street and the big money people keep to themselves. Now's a great time to jump in. So we do this apartment building where we refinance and we come out of that and we go right into the storage deal. Um, you know, our first few storage deals, it's our own money, right? We're, we're learning what we're earning um, and it's our money that's at risk. And once we figured it out, we said, OK, well, let's go take. You know, let's raise money from other people. Yes, that's our direct sphere of influence. And then it's blossomed out to friends and family of people that we know. And it grows um, and it organically grows, hopefully faster than you know what we can deploy. Um, but in the end, yes, again, it's, it's people that are close to us. We're not taking money from people that we don't have a relationship with. Um, you know, again, for our comfort level. Uh, you know, for us, it's friends and family that are close to us that know and trust and that align with what we want to do. You know, our thesis is to us, worst case scenario is a sale. Our best case scenario is if we can refinance, return all the capital and continue to operate it for a period of time, um, you know, further than the five year time horizon. We understand the IRR potentially goes down, but, you know, it's providing cash flow for everybody involved. So that's that's what works for us. I love it. I love um, sticking within, you know, those core competencies or your core networks, right? And we all have them. We have people that are like us in some way, shape or form that we understand and relate to. And, you know, a lot of people struggle with, and I did at first, and, and I struggled with asking for money or capital. And I was having a conversation with somebody and I'm like, I, I just don't want to be out selling, right? I felt like, you know, I don't want to be bugging people or whatnot. And they were like, AJ, you're not selling something. You're allowing other people to participate in what you get to participate, wealth and income creation. You're not selling something. If you're not allowing people to come in, you're robbing them of opportunity. And I was like, I never thought about it like that. And they're like, you can give people an opportunity to have what you have and to do what you're doing and creating what you're creating. And that was a big shift for me to say, you're right. I should be, and I should be create, and I should be giving opportunity to others. And I, and this is, nobody has to take it. I'm not, it's not a hard sell, anything else like that, but especially within the people that I know, or I understand, right. And allowing them, like you said, to participate in what Wall Street or upper end people that they get all these direct investments into IPOs, everything else 
that the majority of people don't have. And that is a huge thing that you're doing for those people. The vast majority of wealth crea uh, creation, not the vast majority, basically all of it is created through direct investments, including when you look at the middle class. The middle class, almost all of their wealth is created through the direct investment within their home. That's true in the United States. It's always been true. And that's how the um, upper levels, they get all their wealth and income through direct investment through assets like directly investing in commercial real estate, businesses, things like that. You're offering those people an opportunity to do that. And I think that's uh, amazing. And frankly, it's very noble. It's like, this is really cool for you to do, to try to do it right, to allow people to participate in. And if anyone's struggling with that, you know, it's change your mindset, change in what you're doing uh, or change how you view what you're doing. Cause it is, it's, it's a big thing and people need that opportunity. Yeah. And I'll say I resonated with one of your past shows uh, when you were talking about your content creation, you're like, man, I was kind of embarrassed to put it out. Cause I go through the same thing. Right. And it's the same thing with the offerings of your deals. You're like, oh, I don't really want to talk about it. Especially do you got to remember the firehouse, the kitchen table, man, that's a war zone. It doesn't matter who you are. You're getting beat up. So yeah, you just sit down and you're like, <laughs> Yeah, I got this cool deal. Like it's, a, it's an apartment deal. Oh, you're an idiot. Why are you going to like, everybody's yeah. got the right answer. And I'm like, well, you know, we've done really well over here. Like maybe you guys should jump in and, you know, you just get beat up. So like you yeah. get into this box of like, I don't want to tell anyone else, and, you know, and then you start get, limiting yourself kind of like what you're talking about your content creation. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, all this stuff should be taught in high school and yeah. in college and everywhere else. And it's not being taught. And there's a reason why. Um, and it's kind of sad. So, you know, yes, first responder, financial freedom uh, and literacy in general is something that's passionate to us. And if we can help people see that, um, you know, we're, we're always happy to take them along with us and, and show them how we've done it. And look, you want to invest side by side with someone like us or someone like you. Sure. But I do truly also believe that everybody should try to buy their own assets and see yeah, the benefit of real estate, you know? You know, it's, it's funny because I've been working clarifying, like you talked about, I, I struggled for years on, on making, I, a lot of people don't know, I put out no content, zero, until after I'd become fully paralyzed. And the only reason I did was because I made a promise to myself in the hospital. Other than that, I'd never put out financial content whatsoever. Nothing on anything. And uh, um, uh, even though we had been buying huge assets, I'd invested in businesses, I'd failed, I'd look stupid and all the above, which would have really probably helped people out. But, you know, I was so nervous about it. And when just what you said, though, there is really important. I've actually put a, a, a diagram together on why we do content, what it means. And basically, we have two avenues, right? Um, I teach or create wealth and income for individuals. So we, everything we do is free. The only thing that's paid is for our time in the wealth creation process or the income creation process. And there's two avenues. I believe everybody should be doing it themselves. So we allow you to come on board with us, right? And then like you, we're paid in the form of equity or fees, like everybody is. Or we teach people how to go out and do it exactly themselves. Either way, somebody wants to do it. We encourage both. And I encourage majorly participation before action, just like we were talking about before. You participate with those that know, including either investing with other people, hiring property management companies, whatever that may be, because that gets down a lot of barriers of entry for people that are fearful because they don't know what they're doing, which is not putting your hand in the sand, or head in the sand and being stupid. That's a correct fear. You should be. You should take it seriously enough to where you are honest enough about the repercussions of doing these things. So to get over that, investing with other people or hiring third-party management companies like you have done is the smart way to do it. It's a way for you to get in the game, for you to learn, reduce your overall risk, increase your capabilities while going through actions. And, you know, really, this was really, really transformative to me when we started doing this and saying, there's a purpose behind what we do. There's a reason behind it. It is not salesy. It is not anything like that. This is what we do. There's two ways we do it. Everything, all content is free. If you want my time though, that's different. You need to pay for it, right? So if, well, we only offer, we offer group, uh, uh, we offer our inner circle things that we do, right? That's associated with my time. So if you want to do it your time, or if you want our work, my team, all our employees out here, okay, we get equity or fees in the form of you investing alongside. Other than that, everything's free, but we do it in two ways. And when you when you look at it and you frame it correctly, like you said, you're worried about getting beat up, right, on the table. 
Same way. It was like, I'm going to put out content. I'm going to get crap from all my buddies, right? I'm going to get crap from people. What do I know? Oh, AJ out there on Instagram doing things, you know? And so it was like, I had to really change my perception. There's a point for this. There's a reason for it. It's not a salesy, it's not a pitch, anything else like that. But we believe so strongly in it like you do. And changing that perception, um, it really not only helps you and helps others. And I think how you've gone about it, man, is perfect identifying saying, I'm going to get third-party management. We're focusing on this. I know my target audience and that focus and that being aware of your strengths and weaknesses has caused your success and mm-hmm. will continue to create your success. And when people invest with other people, I always tell them this, you need to invest with people that are very aware of opportunity, but even more aware of the downside and the risks. And I find a lot of problems. In fact, I'm launching a whole series on all the bad things coming out with self-storage, how I think all the problems in the self-storage market and everything. If you're not hearing those things, and if, you, if you're hearing from somebody, oh, I can do everything. You don't need to worry about it. That's where you should have problems. And I love the fact that you said, no, we don't know this. We're not where we should be. So we're going to hire this out and get a third-party management. Those are the people you should invest with. The people that are aware of that and can actually say, I'm going to get the people that should be doing it. I, I think it's awesome. And it's obviously created to your success and what you're doing. And it shows. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's honestly one of my favorite parts about this podcast here with you today, Ian, is, is this aspect of you're investing in what you know, you know, you're going out and you're focusing on your strengths. Like AJ was talking about, you've identified those strengths, those weaknesses you're getting rid of or hiring out those other portions that you're not an expert in that you don't want to take on. Um, and the other, the other aspect too, that I think people need to realize is whatever decisions you're making right now, starting out, or even if you're a veteran down the road, whatever that is, whatever decisions you've made or that you're making aren't set in stone. You don't have to continue operating it on your own if you're doing that or doing third party if you're doing that. You can always change that later on. So I I think that's kind of one of the mental barriers as well as like people have this idea. Yeah, I'm going to do this or that when there's really, there's multiple paths to achieving the same thing. Yes. To get so. to the goal, which you've outlined. How many, yeah. yeah. And how many people even take the time to audit what they've done? Like look back and say, Oh my God, I did this. Well, how did I get here? Right? Like we all do dynamic pricing on our storage facilities. Why aren't we being dynamic in like our goals and our budgets and everything else that we do? Like this is a living, breathing thing. And I think too yes. many people want to get so rigid and be like, here's my goal. I got to do it. And this is how I'm going to get there. And they don't care what else happens. And it's the wrong way to do it versus saying, okay, I learned from this. I need to adjust my goal. I need to do this. I need to keep growing. Uh, and I need to take time. So mm-hmm. yeah, man. Awesome. So hundred percent. Well, Hey, tell people where can they go to learn more about you, what you're doing? I've got some stuff pulled up, lead everything. We can attach the links. Um, but where, where can people go to find out more about you and learn about you guys and what you're doing? Yeah, we're all over social media. You can look up my name, Ian Horowitz, or look up our company, Equity Warehouse, or you know, you can check us out over at equitywarehouse.com. Um, and that's the best place to find us. We're pretty active on a lot of the, the storage forums and everything else out there. So you can easily find us if you want to track us down. Awesome, man. We'll put them in the show notes and uh, definitely everybody go out there and check them out, especially, I mean, if you're a first responder, know somebody who is, um, connect with these guys. They're doing amazing work. And uh, Ian, dude, thanks a bunch for coming on. You guys are crushing it. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, man. This was great. Yeah. Appreciate it.